Hello everyone, Emil Kalinowski here. Our show was a bit long today, so I'm not going to do an introduction. Thank you everyone for encouraging me with these little pieces of madness that I do. But nothing today, we're just going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we're going to get right to the show, which did run long. If you're interested in skipping around, check the show notes in your podcast player. It's in the notes as to what you can find where. Have a good week. But first, this from Euro Dollar Enterprises. The motion picture event of the summer, Contango in Cash. When an international smuggling rink uses the local commodity exchange to send gold into backwardation, two macroeconomists take matters into their own hands and onto the spot market. Starring Travis, the President Kimmel as Contango. You can take delivery alone, punk. And Steven the Monarch Van Meter as Cash. You know how I promised to let you close out that trade? Yeah, man, you did, Cash. You did promise. I lied. With Grant Williams as the polite British guy. Well, Chops, you put the markers on, didn't you? This motion picture will never be rated, available only on demand at Real Vision. Hello, everyone. It's been about a year since Jeff Snyder and I have uh, started this uh, show. And early on, I remember maybe episode two, I said that yield curve control is going to be the hottest thing for bankers or central bankers this Christmas. Well, it seems to have kind of come off the boil. But recently, Jeff Snyder did write about yield curve control. And that's going to be the first article we're going to talk about because it seems like making, it's making a comeback. Jeff, should I call it a comeback? No, it's been here for years. I know we referenced LL Cool J's famous song before, but that's really it. I mean, yield curve control is nothing new. It's been tried other places before, but they, you know, it, for most of the, probably an American audience, they probably have never seen it or heard about it before, except for, you know, back last year when it first came up. And now you're starting to see it creep into the, to the mainstream media yet again as long-term treasury yields rise. Yeah, it was like about June, July, where rumors started coming out about a yield curve control. And then they seemed to kind of set it off to the side and the, the, the Fed did. But this, this whole episode, this whole part that we're going to talk about right now is going to be about the global technocrats. So we're going to travel around the world to different countries to take a look at the tools that central bankers are thinking of using or actually using or how financiers are thinking about the future. And you're going to give us your opinion. The first article with YCC about to come back, come back up, a look at it down under. And it was posted on February 16th. And as the quote suggests, we're going to talk about Australia. But before we do, Richard Fisher comes up in this quote. I think he's going to come up during the show a couple of times. Let me quote him. And then you tell the audience who he was and what was he talking about here. Quote. In summary, I want to mention that, as I said earlier, most of these variations that have been suggested are very unbadgetly. And what I mean by that is twisting, or QE and yield caps, entails purchasing assets that investors are fleeing toward, not assets that they are fleeing from. What does that have to do with uh, yield curve control? 
Well, Richard Fisher was the former president of the Dallas Federal Reserve. And in 2011, when he, when he was talking about that at the FOMC, the idea was, look, we got to lower interest rates. And what he was, by purchasing bonds at the long end, and what he was saying is, well, are we really lowering interest rates because everybody's already fleeing into those instruments we're going to be purchasing? So that's really not, you know, uh, doctrinaire central banking as, you know, Walter Badgett had, had specified back in the 19th century. You know, we're, we're supposed to be buying the stuff that becomes illiquid, not trying to buy what everybody's already buying. And so that sets up a, a, a pretty big contradiction for not just, I mean, pretty much everything in the, in the modern QE era, because that's really what central bankers end up buying. They're buying assets that the market already demands. Interest rates are already falling. So why does it make a difference if the Fed's going to buy more bonds and make interest rates supposedly fall even further? So what is yield curve control, Jeff? I, I think of it as the government is stepping in to make market rates illegal because they're rising, right? They're rising and therefore the government is going to be paying out even more in interest. So they step in to cap yield curve control. But that's, is, do I have that correct? And it's kind of strange time to be implementing that. Some people talk about it that there's this sort of nefarious intent to the, the Federal Reserve or, or, you know, a foreign central bank is working in concert with the government to keep, you know, borrowing rates low like they had done during World War II and its immediate aftermath. Obviously, that was a, hey, we, we don't want borrowing costs to rise because we're fighting a, a, you know, a war here. But that's not really what yield curve control is in the modern age. And I, I know people struggle to understand what it is because it doesn't make any sense given what the markets do. What economists and central bankers are saying is that the biggest risk to recovery, all these false dawns over the last dozen years, is that yields rise too fast and that chokes off the recovery that QE was creating. So the idea is if we let yields just, if they start to go up again, we got to cap them so that the yield rising doesn't choke off the recovery before it takes hold. And so it's one sense of central bankers trying to make sense of how they've repeatedly failed over the last dozen years. And they can't come back and say, well, QE doesn't work. Instead, they, oh, the bond market, the bond market does it. Whenever the bond market rise, you know, we had 2013, 2010, whatever it was, we have interest rates rising. Maybe they rose too fast in the wrong way. And that's what, that's what destroyed the recovery, which is just flat, flat out wrong because rising interest rates are exactly what we want to see. Rising interest rates confirm that there is a recovery. So the, the fact that, uh, that uh, central bankers are looking for yield curve control or yield caps as a way to essentially peg interest rates so they don't interrupt the recovery process is just reverse engineering how we can still look at QE positively. It's a fascinating nuance, and I encourage the audience, rewind and re-listen to what Jeff was saying because uh, I don't think people are aware of that nuance as to why yield curve control must be implemented now. As your title suggests, Jeff, we're going to Australia. If you're going to Australia, folks, I recommend looking up Daniel J. Want and Joseph Noah Walker, the latter fantastic podcast, the former, a first principles financial philosopher. Great guys, but we're going to Australia not just for them because the Reserve Bank of Australia did something and got a lot of credit for it, didn't they, Jeff? Yeah, they 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 went right out with yield caps early last year, right right early in the crisis. They said, "Look, 
We want yields to be low because we believe yield, low yields are stimulus. Never mind the fact that yields were already low because the market was already buying those instruments, as you can see here. So back in March, the RBA announces we're going to do yield caps because we don't want interest rates to rise and spoil the recovery, except that you know interest rates didn't really rise. And in fact, for a couple of months there, the RBA didn't even have to buy any bonds in order to enforce this yield cap because the market was more than happy to keep it uh, around the, the target range. And that's another justification for YCC or yield caps is that compared to a QE, which fixes the quantity of purchases a central bank will have to do you know, on a weekly or monthly basis, yield caps just says, look, we want rates to be low and we're only going to buy enough bonds that are necessary to enforce the cap. So from a central bank perspective, it seems like it will be much more efficient. You don't have to buy as many bonds in order to achieve the same goal, which for them is low interest rates. And again, go back to Richard Fisher is, are we really responsible for rates being low? And here we have Australia, their first experience with yield caps. They didn't have to buy any bonds because the market did. And so it was a direct comparison or a direct uh, result of what Richard Fisher was talking about. I think this chart is stunning because there's this glaring discrepancy uh, between September and November. As you, as you bring it out, Jeff, it's, you would think yield curve control means the central bank is in charge at keeping a rate somewhere. But here, as you, you're just, as you just explained, I'm just reiterating what you're saying. I can't help myself because I think this, that from September to November, the market was going and where it wanted to. And then two months later, the central bankers joined them. And so it seems like who, just like you said, Jeff, like who's leading who? The market. Yeah, and remember September and October, that was not just a, not just an Australian phenomenon. It was all around the world. You see interest rates falling in Germany, for example. German bond yields were declining because that was the summer slowdown, higher risk, all sorts of things. And so here we have an example of the market saying, yeah, you're capping rates at 25 basis points for the three-year AGS, but we're going to bid them up anyway. So rates are going to go lower. And it wasn't until early November that the Reserve Bank of Australia said, oh, we're going to reduce our target to where the market already is. And that's, that's a, it's actually a common phenomenon. You look at zero interest rates in the United States in 2008, the federal funds rate and the repo rate and treasury bill rates had already gone dropped down to zero long before December 2008 when the Fed decided, oh, we're going to target zero interest rates. Well, guess what? The market was already there. So a lot of times that's what happens. In order to maintain the illusion of control, they adjust their targets to what the market's already doing. And so again, we come back to Richard Fisher. Why are we buying things the market already does? And it's really, it's about the maintaining the illusion of control. Jeff, there's another important reason why central banks control the short of the end of the curve so that they can control the long end of the curve. I'm going to pull up another graph that shows the long-term uh, Australian bond yields as well as the short-term. And you tell the audience what's happening. Yeah, that goes back. I mean, it's a long, long time. Economists have believed that the way the yield curve behaves or, or interest rates behave in general is that the central bank sets the short end and then everything kind of follows in line from there. Remember, Alan Greenspan in his conundrum testimony, you know, 15 years ago said the yield curve acts as a series of one year forwards. And so if you control the first in that, in that line of forwards, it stands to reason that all the rest would just fall in line. But that's never really the case. The further down the curve you go, especially outside the short term, 
they sort of begins to act independently. And so here we see again that that, that, that very case where short-term yields are falling because of risk perceptions and longer-term yields, like in the United States and the Treasury curve right now, longer-term Australian yields have been rising since early November, reflecting reflationary conditions, perhaps over the intermediate and longer term. So you have the, the short end saying short-term risks, problems, liquidity, that kind of thing, and the long end saying, well, you know, maybe we'll get past that and then it'll be slightly reflationary over the intermediate and longer term. Another important point, Jeff, is that chart that we saw, and the audience that's listening only can imagine the alligator jaws or the shark's open mouth diverging. We see that same pattern in the United States, and you make that point, very important point. Let me read it. Quote, opposite ends of the earth, Australia and the United States, U.S. Treasury market, one with yield curve control, the other with none, and yet curves functioning almost the same way regardless, as if there's some linked global monetary system in between everything outside the geographical boundaries of central banks desperate to show, never prove how they must be in charge. There's something yeah, and I think that's really the whole point. I mean, here we have, you know, at the short end, they were targeting a higher rate and the low short end rates fall. And then at the, up, in the, at the long end of the yield curve, the Australian curve, rates are rising, which are ignoring a lower target. I mean, so what is the, what is the Reserve Bank of Australia actually in control of here? I'd like to have some central banker in Australia tell us what it is they purport to control, let alone what they actually control. And that's, that's really the point is that the market decides this stuff. And we'll go back to Richard Fisher one last time. Why are we buying things the market is already buying? And so it, the whole thing crumbles from there. If, if the theory is that quantitative easing is responsible for lower interest rates and therefore lower interest rates are stimulus and therefore create the recovery, what Fisher is saying is we've got the whole thing wrong because the market is reducing interest rates. And the reason the market would be uh, in high demand of the safest, most liquid instruments are not the kinds of things we associate with stimulus. And therefore, lower interest rates cannot be correspondent to recoveries because they haven't been throughout history. So again, it's, it's all about pre pretend and smoke and mirrors. Throughout history, it's been tried before. And that's what you, you make a point of in your February 17th post at Alhambra Partners. And the first two words of your title are already tried. The remainder, if the, if the editor can zoom in, we don't have an editor, but if people can zoom in, they could see that these letters are not Greco-Roman, and what language is this, and who has tried yield curve control before, Jeff? That's actually yield curve control in Japanese. And so, you know, look, I mean, I think people who are, have, have listened to our podcast and have read the articles before absolutely know that anything that any central <laughs> bank anywhere in the world is attempting today has already been tried and has already failed in Japan. Because the Japanese do everything first, and it was absolutely the case with yield curve control. They unveiled yield curve control all the way back in September of 2016, which it wasn't just yield curve control. It was QQE with yield curve control because the idea was that, hey, we're going to get interest rates low with QQE, and then we're going to keep them there with, with YCC and you know Richard Fisher and all that stuff again. Uh, Ecclesiastics, Jeff. Nothing new under the sun. 
people don't know that originally it was nothing new under the rising sun because it was actually going to be about quantitative easing and central banking. It was edited out later, but it's been tried before. What about SOFR, Jeff? Has that been tried before? We're pivoting to a new article, audience. We're, we're going to something uh, that was posted at Alhambra Partners blog, February 12th. The title, Insufferable SOFR Suffering. I love the S. I've been practicing the alliteration and tongue-tied twisters. Peter Piper, well, okay, you understand. I'm going to read something. You tell us who wrote this and what SOFR is about, okay? Quote, no decision has been made by Treasury regarding potential issuance of an forward rate note linked to the secured overnight financing rate. Treasury continues to actively explore the possibility of issuing such a product and will provide ample notice to market participants if it chooses to move forward. It sounds innocuous. Yeah, don't you hate it when people refer to themselves in the third person? <laughs> you know, here we have that's actually who wrote that. Treasury wrote that about themselves. I mean, it wasn't just that. No, that was from the last Treasury quarterly funding statement and buried down in, in, you know, it's not too long of a statement, but down toward the end of it, they said, look, we've been, we've been, apparently we've been bugged about the SOFR thing for at least eight, nine, 10 months because it's appeared in the quarterly funding statement uh, for the last couple of them. And they said the same thing is we're not linking our fixed rate notes to SOFR. They don't say why, but they're just saying we're not going to do it because people are trying to get us to do it. And this really gets back to what sulfur is supposed to be. Sulfur is supposed to be, as you said, the, the you know the supplementary overnight fi uh, financing rate. It's supposed to be replacement for LIBOR. In fact, that's the reason it was constructed in the first place. We have to go back all the way back to 2012. Ben Bernanke got before Congress and said, well, he didn't say it, but he allowed the media to say that LIBOR fixing scandal was the crime of the century. And this was this massive deal of banks stealing nickels from grandmas and so something like that. When that wasn't the case at all. It was a scandal. There was price fixing. There was fraudulent behavior, but it never amounted more than an eighth of a base, you know, an eighth of a percent here or there or a basis point here or there. It was not a really big deal. But anyway, the Federal Reserve, along with central bankers and bank regulators around the world, decided we need to get rid of LIBOR. We need to get rid of LIBOR. So they, they studied different ways that they could. And by 2014, they, created, they had created something called the Alternative Rates Reference Committee, which came up with this software thing. And the idea was that LIBOR is going to end, software is going to take over. And LIBOR, if you don't know, LIBOR is the euro dollar rate. It's a London interbank offer rate, which applies to euro dollar money. And it is the essentially the, the link of pricing mechanisms for financial products all over the world. We're talking about tens of trillions of dollars in financial assets and markets and things all over the world. So it's not like this, some obscure, unused, you know, a trivial rate. This is a, this is a major thing. And the Federal Reserve is making a huge deal out of it saying, we're going to end LIBOR and software is going to take over. I, I was on my phone scrolling through our podcast page trying to find the episode number to recommend to our audience because we did a whole episode on software. I can't find it. It was in the autumn of 2020. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes below after, after we wrap up. But we did a whole show on it, and you guys can look into that some more. So, Jeff. Yes, things have been updated since that show. So that's what we're doing here is we're updating what's happened in software. I'm going to read another statement here. 
the FFIEC statement further explained that a new financial contract should either utilize a referencery other than LIBOR or have robust fallback language that includes a clearly defined alternative reference rate after LIBOR's discontinuation. Separately, the agencies recently issued a statement that says the bank may use any reference rate. So yeah, just go ahead and do whatever you need to, it doesn't matter. For its loans that the bank determines to be appropriate for its funding model and customer needs. So you guys just do what you need to do, right? They're giving up. It's kind of a big change, right? Because, okay, beforehand it was LIBOR's evil, it's done. Not only that, you're going to replace LIBOR with software. If you're an American bank doing business in the U.S., regulators say you're going to use software. To the point that they've been bugging the Treasury Department to use to, to uh, link their, their floating rate notes to software. Now, late last year, suddenly we get this, LIBOR is still evil. We've pushed back the deadline to get rid of LIBOR a couple times, but we're still going to get rid of LIBOR. But if you don't want to use software, you want to use something else, go ahead and use something else. I mean, that's a big change. And it really gets back to our point here, was, which is you know technocrats attempting to show that they're in charge of their domains and in this case saying, we're going to get rid of LIBOR for reasons that have nothing really to do with anything that you've heard in public. It's really about we don't like people referencing a euro dollar rate, which raises all sorts of uncomfortable questions for Ben Bernanke, especially at times when the, this LIBOR rate is a much better representation of lending conditions, especially as they really are outside the United States. So let's get rid of LIBOR. Let's, let's use the fixing scandal as our you know, Casas Ballet to say, we're going to get rid of the LIBOR. We're going to go to war against LIBOR. And okay, we've done that for about eight years now. The market has rejected this, still uses LIBOR regularly, uh, has there's no slowing it down. And oh, by the way, this software rate that we've created, nobody really uses that. So we're kind of losing the war here and we still have to kind of, you know, get the system to work and we can't keep pushing back deadlines. So, okay, now we're still, we still hate LIBOR, but you guys use whatever reference rate you want. And what that really shows is, as I say in the article, these people really have no idea how the system actually works. They can't have any idea because nobody who understood how modern finance works, especially the inner plumbing and the bowels that we all assume the central bankers know really, they know, they know this stuff better than anybody else. If that was true, they never would have proposed software as a replacement to begin with because it's not a suitable replacement by any stretch of the imagination, which is the entire reason why banks are just shrugging their shoulders and saying, you want, us to, you want us to use something other than LIBOR, we're still going to continue using LIBOR. Jeff, I'm going to pull up some graphs that show LIBOR today, the different uh, vintages, different uh, tenors, and then euro dollar features. You can tell us uh, if you see anything interesting in that. But before I do, I just wanted to give a quote here from the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. They give a reason why they don't want to do this. It's not the reason you said, but the reason, they say, is LIBOR is referenced globally and its expected cessation could affect banks of all sizes through direct or indirect exposure. There is risk of market disruptions, litigation, and destabilized balance sheets if acceptable replacement rates do not attract sufficient market-wide acceptance or if contracts cannot seamlessly transition to new rates. I. You know what? 
that that's Lib- all true. We hate LIBOR, but software is not being accepted. That's really what they're saying. And they're trying to guilt the banking system into to, to transitioning because, oh, my God, you're going to crash the world. It's not our fault. It's your fault. If we ha- we're going to end LIBOR, then we don't have a seamless transition. It's all your fault. We've warned you. We, you're not you're not uh, transitioning to software. So it's all, you know, we're taking the blame off of us. That's not really the same thing. <laughs> you know, what it also makes me think of, Jeff, is that it's impotent. I mean, what they're yeah. saying here makes complete sense. But you know what it reminded me of? Executive Order 6120, the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt. He, he pulled gold out of the system, and then the, the system was relying on gold in the United States. It had to go to the Supreme Court that, uh, you know, that people were saying, hey, you owed me gold, and you changed the system. Talk about disruption. Talk about upsetting and knocking over the whole apple cart because he had a vision, right or wrong. He had a vision about what to do. That, that shows courage, belief, a vision. This, this shows impotence because we're scared it might upset the apple cart. Yeah, I know it'll upset the apple cart. But and it's also ineffective, right? Because they've been saying basically the same thing for year after year after year. And yet they keep pushing back the deadline because the banking system says, look, you guys don't understand, obviously, how this works. We're, we have to use LIBOR. It's not like we love the thing and it's, it's, it's our child. It's we have to use it because it's the only way we can work out these, these really complicated things like you know, TBAs and dollar rolls in the mortgage market. The way, the way the system actually works, you cannot use software as a replacement. It's not that they don't want to. It's they can't. You can't use software. And so, again, I say that that tells you something about these technocrats who who've for so many years now have said, we're going to transition you to software whether you like it or not. The banking system would say, hey, look, maybe we don't need LIBOR, but you can't give us software as a replacement. You just can't. And anybody who knows the system would know that. Jeff, I've pulled up a chart that goes back to the beginning of last year. It's got the federal funds rate target lower bound, upper bound, the effective rate. And then it's got the different uh, tenors of LIBOR from overnight all the way to 12 months. Is there anything that we should be seeing in this chart or anything unusual, anything that you wanted to raise before we move on to Eurodollar futures on the next tab? Well, actually, what you're showing me here is the ZEW. All right. Well, so we got, the, we got the wrong chart here. We have to fire the production staff. I, I will fire somebody. I'm very, I enjoy that. Okay. I, I'm going to pull it up now. Here we go. How does that work? Okay. There we go. There we go. Anything there is, it seems all calm. It seems like the, the short-term rates are within the band. So, but you're the expert. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't expect LIBOR rates to behave exactly like federal funds. This is not pre-August 2007. Then that's really one reason why the, uh, the Fed wants to get rid of LIBOR because it was back during the first financial crisis. And as you can see here in March and April and May of last year, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. LIBOR rates were sky high, which told you, Hey, this this abundant reserve stuff that the Fed keeps talking about, not so abundant outside the United States in the euro dollar market, is it? And so unsecured borrowing, which is what this is really about, um, whether it's 2007, 2008 or 2020, LIBOR is a thorn in the side of the Fed. And even now, you can see the LIBOR rate, uh, some of the longer term rates are still they're still kind of elevated. And so they have a they have a relatively high spread compared to where they, I hate to use the word, but where they should be if the world was overabundant in liquidity. 
What about euro dollar futures? What are euro dollar futures, Jeff? Are they the anticipated? They're they're where the market anticipates short term rates will be some point in the future. Is that right? I'm yes, chilling. where three month LIBOR will be in the future. Perfect. And so it's 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 really kind of an important uh, uh, financial setting because look. I mean, three months LIBOR, again, is a benchmark rate for trillions upon trillions of assets and trillions upon trillions of processes that they take place deep in the bowels of the plumbing of the system. And therefore, we need to know not just how much I have to, how much can I borrow, or what's the cost of borrowing for three months today? What is the cost of borrowing for three months, you know, a year from now? That's an important consideration. And that's not something you can get from software. Software doesn't have a term structure. And it really doesn't have a really developed futures market either, even though they've been working very hard about developing a futures market, it's still really limited. So you have no term structure and not really a good enough liquid deep liquid futures market. So you can't say with software, if I need to borrow for three months, a year from now, what would it cost me? Or not what will it cost me? Can I lock in those rates or hedge my exposure to any changes in, in rate structure between now and then? And you just can't use software to do that. It's just it's, it's an inappropriate attempt at, you know, uh, central bankers uh, playing technocrats on TV. Uh, so I'm showing from October of 2017 all the way through the most recent reading of 2021 here, different uh, euro dollar futures expiring in June from June 2021 this year all the way to June 2029. I know in those later years we don't have a lot of liquidity. But what we see is that the nearer term, closer to zero, while the, I don't know, starting in June 24th, starting with that contract, we see, we see a rise in where we expect inflation rates or short-term LIBOR rates to be. Or, or do we? I mean, it does, it's not really that much higher, is it, Jeff, in 2024? Well, what it's basically saying is that you know, the world looked really bad not too long ago, and now it looks less bad. And it, and it looks less bad many, many years from now. That's really all the LIBOR curve is saying or the Eurodollar futures curve is saying is that, yeah, we kind of think things are going to be bad for a while, but maybe they won't be as bad now that we have vaccines. Maybe the stimulus stuff will work or at least keep everything afloat long enough that we get five or six years down the road. Maybe it will be not necessarily back to normal. You really got to go back further to the pre-crisis because, you know, two and a half percent LIBOR to somebody in the 1990s would have thought something was really, really, really wrong because LIBOR used to be six, 7% as a normal basis. So two and a half percent, you know, by the end of the decade isn't, isn't exactly robust as it might sound. It only seems robust compared to where, how low things have gotten last year. Our last article, our last stop on this whirlwind tour of technocrats and financiers it's, uh, we're reading from this article here. It's called Reflation Patience, Another Six Months. You posted it on February 16th at Alhambra Partners. And we're going to be looking at the German ZEW survey. But just to set the context, what am I going to do? I'm going to show the two other very important surveys in Germany. There are two other important surveys. One is the IFO survey, and that one is of the broad business community. Okay, and so what I'm showing in this particular graph, can you see it, Jeff? Is that yep. uh, this is what is this one here? It excludes services, but it's the current business situation. 
I excluded services because I get a longer time scale going back 29 years. The same message we can see since the 90s or the 80s, no, 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 the 2000s, uh, if we include services is visible. But what we see is that the current business expectations of the broad business community is well below the 29 year trend. It's awful. It's terrible. I'm going to show you the next one. The next one is of consumers, Jeff. So that was broadly business leaders. This one is the GFK survey of German consumers. Uh, it just ring in the second worst month over month decrease in survey history going back to 2001. It's nowhere near anything normal, right? It's awful. It's awful. And I'm showing a quote here from October, how people were concerned in October. It's only gotten worse since then. So the third survey is the ZEW, and that one is of financiers, German financiers, Jeff. And they seem to be thinking differently than business owners, managers, and consumers. Tell, tell the audience the, the disconnect. It's the ECB. <laughs> no, I mean, finance, it's really that simple. German Financiers, if you look, they use the ZEW's, uh, you know, sentiment index, which looks at the, 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 the what um, these financiers are thinking six months in advance. They're saying, okay, what do you think of things six months from now? What we see is that every time the ECB does something, they, they look, these people look ahead, these Germans look ahead and say, oh, things are going to obviously going to be so much better. And the thing I like about the ZEW, or at least I did, was that it was one of the first indications all the way back in, in early 2018 that began to say, hey, something's wrong here. You know, Mario Draghi, Jay Powell, whoever you're talking about, they keep talking about acceleration, inflation, recovery. And we're seeing downturn. We're seeing things go the wrong way, which, you know, we picked up on with any number of indications, it became Euro dollar number four. And so when you look at looking six months ahead in that initial 2018 period, they were right because the, the situation index, which is the dotted green line, six months ahead of that low point in middle of 2018, yeah, that was right. They looked ahead six months. They said, Mario Draghi, you got this all wrong. Things are not picking up. They're actually, they're actually coming down in a very serious, concerning fashion. But you know what they did, Jeff? I don't know if you're aware of this. They paused the rate hike cycle. Did you know that in early January? I think I remember something about that. Yeah, I think I do. And what did German financiers do and believe once they realized central banks were on the case? Yeah, it wasn't just the Fed. And by the way, the, the ECB was not part of that. The ECB did alter their forward guidance, but they had just ended quantitative easing in December of 2018. But it was, it was the Fed and other central banks around the world who in early 2018, January 2019, said, oh, we're going to start changing. Our, we're not going to be so restrictive. We're not going to be so in, we're not going to be so hawkish. And there was a you know, slight bump in ZEW sentiment that by the middle of 2019 wasn't paying off in terms of the echo, actual economic situation. So that, that initial global stimulus, if you want to call it that, less hawkishness, you know, in terms of sentiment that by the middle of 2019, even ZEW people were looking at it like, no, this isn't working. But then, yeah. yes, September 2020 or September 2019, uh, while we were distracted with the repo market, quite rightly, in the United States, the ECB had restarted QE 
which propelled ZEW's sentiment looking six months ahead up into the stratosphere. Now, obviously, six months from where it peaked in January, we're into the COVID era. So we might give them a mulligan as to, you know, they, they couldn't possibly have foreseen uh, COVID interrupting the economy. So maybe that, that's, that's the reason for it. I would argue that the, it wouldn't have mattered if it was COVID or anything else. Europe was in recession anyway. They, yeah, that's right. They were heading into recession anyway. And but then, either way, you know, you get into early 2020, sentiment readjusted. And that actually, you know, in the early days of 2020, that sort of corresponded with much lower output, which was actually the case. But as soon as the ECB came back with even bigger forms of QE and more types of, of what they call tools in their toolkit, sentiment has risen, according to this one survey of financiers, as you point out, Emil, to the most since you know, the early 2000s. You know, the, the ZEW sentiment index hasn't been this positive, or at least you know, going back to last year, hadn't been that positive in, in almost two decades. But yet the situation in Germany, the same people, they say, yes, the situation, the sentiment looking out six months ahead, six months from now, things are going to be really good. And then we get six months ahead and the same people say, well, things haven't really changed. I, well, Jeff, I don't have, I don't, I'm speechless. It's basically at, at the heights. There's the survey began in the 1991, so it includes the post-Cold War globalization. And there are few moments, few where sentiment has been higher in 30 years for the outlook by German financiers. It's, uh, yeah, it's and it has to be driven it's, simply it's, by the proportion of the ECB intrusion. And that's really the point here is that here we have financiers who love the idea of a technocracy and love the idea of monetary stimulus, but yet they'll admit we're not seeing the results of it. And it's not just, you know, 2020, 2021. Saw the same thing before in 2008, 2009, as well as 2012, 11, 12, and 13, when Europe was in a sharp recession then too. The idea was, hey, stimulus works, except it doesn't work. And that's really the, the, the idea here is the contradiction. They say it's going to work, but yet they'll say, well, it didn't work. Well, yeah, we still believe it's going to work, but it didn't work. Ladies and gentlemen, we've completed our tour of the technocracy. I don't think that's a word, but we've completed the tour nevertheless. In part two, we're going to start in Germany again, but we're going to go back some 50 years to learn about a medium-sized bank that set in motion something that is leading to a potential quarter-end squeeze, the one we, we always talk about, the seasonal squeezes in March and September. So part two coming up next. Hello, everyone. You may have been hearing something in the financial press of some sort of uh, concern coming up in March. And I'm, I'm speaking about what was in today's Financial Times. And it was written by John Dizzard. And here's a quote. Market freezes have a way of happening in March and September, an echo of the crop cycle. Now, we've talked about this on this show before, and Jeff, you've written about it in your work going back to 2014, 2015, if I remember correctly. And so people are familiar with this notion about the seasonal low point in liquidity, but some people on Twitter are not. And so here, Daniela Gabor is asking a question. She says, I don't get the argument here. Why can't longer-term bonds be used as collateral? And she copied in Carolyn Sisko, who knows a few things about these uh, matters. And here's what she replied. 
long-term long-term bonds have interest rate risk and are inherently riskier collateral than than bills. Wondering whether current dynamics related to possible expiration of the SLR relief at the end of March, but most likely it will be extended. If selling predicted yields rise, bills preferred as collateral. It's very hard to read abbreviated Twitter posts. Jeff, we're going to talk about how this whole SLR thing came to pass. We're going to be referencing an article at Real Clear Markets. It's called Beware, there's another SLF cliff coming at the end of Q1. Jeff, what do you want to tell us? First of all, that's wrong. It's SLR. And that's actually my mistake. I, I, <laughs> through the, our heavy editorial processes, <laughs> these, these typos, uh, I think there's actually two of them actually stayed in the article. And they're, they're right in the introduction, too. So that, that's kind of embarrassing. But it's the SLR, Supplementary Leverage Ratio. What we can let's start at the beginning, Jeff. You could start with Adam and Eve. It's up to you. We've got the time, or you can start with Bank House Herstep. Well, I don't think we should start with Adam and Eve because that kind of gets them too many broad range of topics. So we're really talking if we're getting if we're going to work toward the SLR cliff, this potential cliff, that's really a basal rule. And so I think, where did the basal rules come from? And they actually came from this episode that happened in uh, June of 1974 with a, as you pointed out, a mid-level German bank that was heavily operating in something called the Eurodollar market. And as you say, they were taking in Eurodollar deposits and arbitraging the spread between offshore and New York dollar markets. Before I go on, Jeff, does that mean that back then, interest rates were capped in America, but dollars didn't exist just in America. They existed around the world. They were available around the world and interest rates were higher elsewhere because there was no government saying you can't, uh, you can't pay more interest on that. And so does that mean that this bank was trying to get money out of the US or creating money abroad and uh, arbitraging the spread between the two. Is that what was happening? Yep, they did a lot of that. Plus, they also were huge, uh, important in developing the forward currency markets, which meant that, okay, you want to borrow funds from me to uh, three months from now. I don't really have any dollars for you, but I promise to obtain them on your behalf at this specified price. So that creates all sorts of currency and rate risk too, because what you're really saying is a German industrial firm that wants to, you know, buy some raw material from Brazil or someplace three months from now is going to need the dollars to do it. You're promising you have a hard contract to deliver those dollars, which really means that maybe I can get them from internal processes and deliver them then. But more than likely, I'm going to be able to go into the euro dollar market and be able to borrow them at a rate that I think that I can be able to borrow them at. So a forward currency market is essentially extending the you know, efficiency as well as the fungibility of these global dollars into different qualitative dimensions. And so the forward market is over-the-counter, bespoke, and importantly, it's not on a futures exchange whereby there's some middle man, middle person, middle entity that is requiring some sort of collateral to be put up, right? And so this bank was going into the euro-dollar market and it came to the attention of regulators in Germany and in Britain, who said, uh, 
you know, you're, they said, Hey, you've got a hell of a lot of us yeah. dollar liabilities. <laughs> What's you're, you're like going to make good on this, right? You're the 80th, you know, the 50th, 60th largest bank in Germany. Why do you have billions of dollars and billions of us dollars in foreign currency liability? Maybe we should be thinking, pay attention to you. And, and they said, don't worry. You know, we've got customers, important customers in Ruhr, uh, who need this, but it turns out that no. Well, they also, yeah, they said we've got legitimate business reasons for this because there's a growing globalization, global trend. Germany's at the forefront of selling goods all over the world. They need the dollars to do it. So we have, we have legitimate demand for our dollar activities. But they also said, which was may have been a lie, may have been fraud, that we've covered our currency risk mm. through other you know, offsetting dimensions in, in, uh, with other dealers in the London euro dollar market. That was really the point of contention was had they really managed their risks. And now, folks, we're going to tie it back to last week's episode with Real Clear Markets, where we discussed chips and uh, interbank clearing and daylight overdraft. So, Jeff, very interesting how these things happen, right? Uh, they, the, the bank, Herstat, had a correspondent relationship with Chase Manhattan Bank in New York City. And the location is important because the Earth spins around at this kind of pace. And in London, daylight times go, go out faster. So it's this timing, this daylight overdraft. And tell us the story about the regulators coming in, closing down the bank in Germany, and how all of a sudden, you know, the books aren't closed. There's your intraday activity is at risk. Yeah, well, first of all, Herstat had thought had had covered its foreign current forward currency liabilities. It hadn't. By early June of two, of 1974, regulators had later noticed that their 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 U.S. dollar liabilities had exploded against them, which essentially created all sorts of losses. I think it was something over the order of a half a billion Deutschmarks worth of losses that nobody could really cover. So the bank needed to be taken over and put into receivership. Well, on that particular day, I believe it was June 26, 1974, the German regulators, as maybe German regulators in the 1970s, were acted. They took a rather leisurely approach to do the, to the thing. They said so, there was something in the record about a traffic jam delaying officials getting to the conference room. Somebody had a late flight. But either way, they had a late start on their voting decision to close down uh, Bankhouse Herstadt. And so they didn't come to a decision until the end of the day. Which at that the, in, in Germany they thought, well, it's the end of the German trading. What what's the purpose or what's 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 the big deal? So they closed down. They they issued the order to close it down, and I believe it was four thirty in the afternoon there, which was ten thirty in the morning in New York. So you're Chase Manhattan. You have a correspondent relationship with Herstat. The day has already started, as we talked about with chips. There's messages going back and forth. And so Chase Manhattan is accumulating payment liabilities. Essentially, Herstat is accumulating a uh, daylight overdraft. At the same time, it's already closed in the middle of the New York day. Over liability. So people are saying, hey, Chase, Herstat's going to owes me money. And Chase says, all right. And so Chase should be sending money to them. And then they would, at the end of the day, turn around. Sending say, dollars. Sending dollars on Herstat's behalf to yeah. people who are claiming, I need to get paid from, you know, whatever from Herstat. And Chase would do that. Say, at the end of the day, when the chips stay closed, we settle up with Herstat when everybody's happy. But if Herstat is no longer in business, <laughs> there is no settlement at the end of the day. Who's so Chase quickly leaving? realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm on the hook. 
So what they did is they stopped all outgoing payments on PerStaff's behalf while still collecting incoming receipts, trying to build up their own liquidity cushion because at that time in, early, in the middle of 1974, it wasn't really clear how this was going to work because we have a German bank going, you know, being taken over in um, Germany. What I mean, which bankruptcy rules apply? And although there were several court cases that ended up coming coming out of this, along with some other uh, fail, bank failures in the, in the fall of 1974, where it was as clear as mud how this was going to go. And one of the judges in the, one of the bankruptcy cases says, if we look at bankruptcy in terms of equitable redistribution of, of resources, then time isn't a factor. Well, I hate that, you know, time is absolutely a factor when you're talking about chips and intraday and overnight drafts and things like that or daylight drafts, because that's really what, what's going on here. And quite literally in the case of Herstat, what became called Herstat risk is we have, we have to pay attention to time zones because we now have a global monetary system. Fascinating, fascinating. And so our friends at CHIPS, uh, the Clearinghouse Interbank Payment System said, you know what, we don't quite like this. And so they came up with an idea about a recall and a clawback. and I'm going to read this out because it's kind of confusing. I don't quite understand how this works. Let me read it out. So within a week of Herstat's closing, the settling members, New York Clearinghouse Association, had introduced a recall provision into CHIPS that would allow them to claw back funds from foreign respondents up to 10 a.m. New York time the following day. What? Yeah, it was just so that we need to account for time differences. So something ever happens again, transactions that we thought we settled yesterday, we have the, the unilateral ability to say, no, we didn't settle them yesterday. I need those funds back. And as you can surmise, that kind of violates the whole principle of you know, real-time gross settlement mechanisms, which is when we settle, we settle. That's the end of the story. And we need to be able to count on that. It needs to be that predictable. And so as a consequence of the recall provision, which is nothing more than the Clearinghouse Association trying to protect its members from beginning stuck into Chase's uh, situation, because I believe it was Chase said, look, we have maybe as much as $600 million in potential losses here if we can't get the funds back from Herstat out of bankruptcy. At that time, $600 million was an enormous sum, especially for a single uh, correspondent relationship. And so, you know, what happened over the, the next couple of days into spilling over into early July 1974 was that the entire euro dollar market itself sort of ground to a halt. You know, interest rates rose, illiquidity, non-negotiable, forward market completely shut down, all because the settlement, you know, somebody threw a wrench into an unanticipated wrench based on nothing more than time zones into this interbank settlement processing system. Just fascinating. I love these stories. It's uh, amazing how fragile the system is, but you don't want to keep you know, it that's, a, that's an important point that I didn't make in the article that I think I should make here is that, mm -hmm. remember, this is, not some, this is not a system that somebody sat down and said, I'm going to carefully design all the elements of it. This is a, a thrown together, an organic ad hoc system that just got put together by, ne by necessity because quote unquote benign neglect was the official policy, the banking system was left to figure out how to solve all of these issues that, ne that really needed to be solved because the euro dollar, not the dollar, had become the global reserve currency, the mechanism for distributing liquidity that's primary role of a global reserve currency. And it was really just kind of thrown together. Nobody really thought about these things. They were just alpha and beta testing it as it was going because 
what else were they going to do? And so they, they came up upon this one problem that they didn't think was a problem. Well, the regulators got involved, the governments got involved, the central bankers got involved, and they said, we need to do something. And I'm not surprised that it's the Bank of England that is uh, leading the charge here. This seems to be the only one of the few banks that admits to the existence of the euro dollar system for obvious reasons, which we won't get into right now. But the point is, they said, we need to come up with a way, an early warning system. And uh, they came up with two that you discuss here. Tell us what the the two ideas were, the first one. Well, back in the 70s, first of all, I think there was more of an appreciation for how this, how important this euro dollar system had become. Because maybe it's because it was easier to see because it was a nascent, we're at the leading edge of the second wave of globalization in, in the 70s and 80s. So they understood that this was really important stuff. This offshore dollar market had become the central pivot point for lots of business all over the world. The globe, the world financial system and the world economy was becoming more interconnected and it was becoming more interconnected through this euro dollar channel. So anything that threatened the euro dollar channel was some, it was the same as, you know, the, the Suez crisis in, in 56. If you, if you close down the Suez canal, yeah, business can still happen. Global trade can still happen, but it's much more expensive, much more inefficient. So the Bank of England in particular, but also the Bank of France and, th and other central banks in Europe said, we might want to look at this because although it worked out well, they, they settled their differences and figured out how they were going to manage this, this Herstat risk going forward. What if it was bigger than that? What if it was not just some mid-level German uh, forward currency trader? What if it was one of the big guys? You know, there's some real risk here. And besides, more for the point, this offshore euro dollar system isn't covered by any regulations anywhere. So they were saying, look, you know, we, we don't say in public that this is potentially a problem, but it's potentially a problem. And so they said, why don't, well, they couldn't quite figure out how to measure if a bank was at risk. So the first suggestion was, why don't we have an informal, I know this isn't a chat network, and oh, guys, that's, exa that's <laughs> exactly what they came up with. a messenger. As asinine or ludicrous as it sounds, George Blunden, who was the head of supervision for the Bank of England, said, we need to develop an early warning system. We have to, we have to be able to – remember, I'm in England. Herstat's in Germany. I have no way as head of supervision of the Bank of England to supervise Bankhouse Herstat. But right. I need to be able to do that because it does have consequences. And we all want to be able to do that. Now, we want to preserve sovereignty, national regulatory structure. So what we're really proposing is cooperation amongst regulators to try to develop an early warning system so that we can see these things happening before they become major problems. And what they said was, well, what we really want to know is, what are these guys doing? We need to hear trader gossip. We need the traders down on the floor who talk all the time. You know, the, the traders are infamous. Inf they're infamous gossips. And so all we need is to create a channel where that gossip can filter up to regulators and sovereign central banks and things like that so that we can, you know, maybe create a system where we can develop this early warning system. So, oh, Herstat, I hear the chatter in New York from Chase Manhattan's guys that there's, they're, they're doing stuff they probably shouldn't be doing. We need to take a closer look at it. Or we need to tap the regulators in Germany on the shoulder and say, you guys need to take a closer look at, at Herstat even though that's what already happened. That's, that's exactly what happened in the years before Herstad's failure. They thought we need to formalize the structure and make it better. But essentially the early warning system was, we need, to, we need the system to tell us 
what's going on because it's that complicated, it's that intricate, and it takes place in the shadows. Now, eventually they migrated to something a little bit more objective. I don't know if that's even the right word. Seemingly objective. And that is the birth. And, oh, where were they meeting, Jeff? They were meeting yes, in so they Basel. Created the, Blunden was the chairperson of this informal committee that met in Basel, Switzerland. Basel. So this is the precursor to the Basel Accords, because after a couple of years of trying to create this gossipy-based early warning system, they threw up their hands and said, it's just not flying. And nor would it, I mean, the idea was sound, but you're never going to have traders running to their local regulators saying, hey, the guy that I'm doing business with and making a lot of money with, he's doing things that are, the way we're making a lot of money doing business is, is something you need to take a look at, right? That's just not going to happen. So it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't the idea itself that was flawed, is that there was no realistic way to get the system to identify risks to regulators. And so regulators said at, at this basal committee, well, what else could we possibly do? I know. We'll come up with some objective way to, to quantitatively describe bank activities, taking a particular focus on these international banks and what they're doing between each other, but not just international banks. And that's why the Basel Accords became these international bank standards, or not really standards, but recommended standards, because they decided, well, we can't have a gossip-based early warning system, but maybe through capital ratios, getting banks to file with us and describe their own activities to us, you know, and we'll create a standardized number, these capital ratios and other kinds of metrics. We'll be able to have an early warning system because we'll see changes in these numbers that will t identify for us all of the risks that, that, that had gone unnoticed beforehand. What sort of warning were regulators given from the capital ratios being reported by Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers? Yeah, none, right? Because Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers had absolutely sterling capital ratios when they were fa when they failed, or when Bear Stearns was forced into merger with J.P. Morgan. As it turned out, banks grew very adept at essentially manipulating their capital ratios using all sorts of derivatives and other kinds types of things, and all um, legal. Yeah, well, um, well, actually, within the within the letter of every law, there was yeah. no laws broken. I mean, other, I mean, some of the some of the stuff that uh, came out later. But as far as general management of capital ratios, not just at Lehman Brothers and Barrister, but Citigroup and everybody else, everything they had done was legitimate within the rules. It's just that they had hired, you know, an army of lobbyists, accountants, and attorneys to make sure what exactly can we get away with in in these rules. And what they identified primarily was essentially credit default swaps, which 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 provided them regulatory capital relief on a lot of in a lot of ways they could increase this leverage on their balance sheet that would not show up in a capital ratio. So the capital ratios had a blind spot, which going back to George Blunden, would have been filled in had they still had they figured out a way to 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 develop this gossip system. It reminds me a little bit about Enron. Enron was uh following the accounting standards, not to the spirit, but to the letter. But it was the spirit that they were violating, and that's what mattered. And so thereafter, what did we have? We had the Sarbanes-Oxley that was implemented. And in the financial world, we had something implemented, I believe it's called the SLR, Supplementary Leverage Ratio. And it's kind of weird. It's because now it's like the roles are reversed. Now the SLR is the, is the problem instead of warning regulators to, to a problem within a bank. 
The yeah, SLR is say, the problem. And a lot of people say it's the problem that regulations in the post-crisis era, let's be clear, the SLR came out after 2008, long mm-hmm. after 2008. And it was a way that the Basel people decided, well, how do we fix the capital ratios and, and their blind spot? How do, we, how do we do that? And so what they said was, we won't let banks risk weight their assets or give them the opportunity to manipulate the risk bucket their assets go into. So we'll just measure their balance sheet as it is nominally in absolute terms. And that's really what the supplementary leverage ratio is. It's, it's what, 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 what did Bear Stearns look like, not in terms of its capital ratio, but his SLR ratio, which you would have seen as massive amounts of leverage. And so maybe this is a better way of developing early warning system. But when we do that, obviously the banking system itself can't do all the stuff the banking system used to do before 2007 without incurring capital charges, as well as supplementary charges that are added on for uh, globally or systemically important financial institutions. And so a lot of people have said these regulations are onerous, they're balance sheet restrictive, and that's the reason why the dealer banks have all shrunk over the last couple of years, or last, you know, more than a couple of years, over the last, you know, 10 years. 14. <laughs> because regulations have made banking too expensive. And that's, I don't think that's really the case at all. Because if you go back to the Herstad episode, that was a big potential problem that was solved relatively quickly and not by regulators. It was solved quickly because everyone had a vested interest in this system getting bigger and working in all these other things. What's really happened is that behavior has changed. And that's reason why the gossip system would have worked the best because that's really what we want to know. We want to know a banking system's behavior. And you don't really get that from these static ratios. And so we look at the banking system behavior post-crisis, long before the SLR was ever developed, long before Dodd-Frank. You know, Dodd-Frank didn't show up until years after the crisis. Banking system behavior changed in as early as 2007 because it looked at all of these risks and it, this, banks decided we don't want to be the next Bear Stearns. We don't want to be Lehman Brothers. The Fed looks at Bear Stearns as a success because it didn't, you know, they, they shepherded what seemed to be a, a disruptive failure into the awaiting arms of JP Morgan. But if you're the management of Bear Stearns or you're the employees of Bear Stearns, that wasn't a good episode for you. So nobody wants to be Bear Stearns. You don't want to be the next one, even if it even if the Fed takes a, a positive view of that outcome for this for the participants in the system, that was a negative impact. So behavior had already changed beforehand. And so we fast forward to today, we have this SLR cliff, which we'll explain in a minute, which, you know, shouldn't be a problem because banks who are there, if their behavior says we're willing to take on risks, it doesn't matter what the cost is, we'll do it because we think it's worth the effort. And so if there is an SLR cliff or the SLR, people think the SLR is a problem, it's only because this is a behavioral change is behind everything. We don't think it's worth us trying to overcome, surmount it, or just pay the surcharges in, uh, because there's opportunity out there in the, in the real economy globally. Very well stated, Jeff. And uh, as I've often said, the entire euro dollar system was in response to the restrictions, straitjacket restrictions, financial repression restrictions that make this SLR stuff look like child's play. But the system grew because there was money to be made. What take us out of here, Jeff? What is this concern about a cliff coming up maybe at the end of March? Should we be concerned of the Financial Times? Uh, Mr. Dizer says mm-hmm. last May, uh, the Federal Reserve and OCC and the FDIC got together and said for American banks, we're going to re- we're not going to count U.S. Treasuries nor 
uh, deposit balances held at the Federal Reserve, bank reserves. We're not going to count these two assets in turn when calculating SLRs up until March of March 31st of 2021. So essentially, it was a free period for banks to be able to absorb U.S. Treasuries, which are being sold by the bushel full, and you and the to be able to continue to hold on to bank reserves, which were going to be created by the Federal Reserve and its quantitative easing and other other quote unquote accommodative policies. But as I said, that was only a temporary abatement. And on March 31st, 2021, all the treasuries that banks have bought over the, the last, you know, nine months, 10 months, whatever it's been, along with all of the elevated level of bank reserves that are going to be con- they're con- going to be transferred out of the TGA as Janet Yellen goes into her refunding stuff and stimulus gets spent and whatever. So we have this possibility that for the SLR calculations, a lot more assets are going to be added to them than had been previously, which will make banks more expensive, their balance sheets more expensive than they had been, higher capital charges and things like that, which some people are worried that that will cause some banks to do other things to try to lighten the SLR load. And among other things they might do is sell treasuries, long-end treasuries. If you don't need them, as you were pointing out at the start of this segment, maybe that's one reason why the treasury market has sold off. If, if, if treasuries are going to suddenly be counted, better to have long end or better to sell the long stuff that have inflation risk or perceived inflation risk from some people and hold on to treasury bills because those at least have high utility in the repo market, the highest of the highest quality. So there's, the idea is that, look, there's a regulatory change coming up on March 31st that might cause all sorts of unintended consequences. Well, we shall see what happens then, Jeff. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think we've covered everything. If not, let me know. Otherwise, we'll move on to discussing the American consumer. Oh, okay. So we will move on to the American consumer. Super. Okay. Uh, Jeff, Jeff, you wrote an article here, 47 Explains Much, and you wrote it on February 12th at Alhambra Partners. And of course, I can't help but think of one of my all-time favorite, most delightful books, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the life, uh, the universe, everything, the ultimate meaning of life. And there's a story where a couple of uh, guys built a computer, Deep Thought, and they asked him, can you tell us what's the meaning of life, the ultimate uh, question? And the computer said, yeah, it's tricky, but I can do it. How much time? Seven and a half million years. So they're very upset about that, but they create an entire priesthood to keep the flame going, right? And so seven and a half million years, two guys are waiting there. The computer wakes up and he says, I've got an answer for you. Uh, And they're so excited. Uh, The computer says, you're not going to like it though. Tell us, you're not going to like it. And the life, the universe, the ultimate issues of life, the number 42. And of course, just pure comedy. I love it. I love it. And so I was hoping that this is what this is about. Is this book six to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I think that would probably have been a better outcome. But no, it's, it's, it's about jobless claims. And it's actually up to 48 now. Right. Which is for the last 48 weeks, jobless claims have been above what would have been before last year, record levels. In fact, no single week in any, at any point in history had ever been 700,000. And over the last 48 weeks, we've never been less than 700. In fact, in fact the lowest point was 711,000 in November. Jeff, can you see this graph I'm showing here? Yep. 
the initial jobless claims. I think that's just a great visual that it's off the charts, right? Compared yeah, I, to I didn't, you know, when I created the chart and what we're looking at here is what I call excess claims, which is the amount of, because there's always some amount of jobless claims, even in the best economies. There's usually a couple hundred thousand because there's, there's people moving, there's people losing jobs, people moving back and forth. There's frictions in the labor market. So what we really are interested in when we're talking about recessions in the business cycle is how many excess claims there are above the pre-crisis or the pre-recession period. And so when we compare the, the largest recessions of the last, you know, of the post-war era, the last 80 years, that's 1981, 82, 2008, 2009, and 2020, you know, we're, we're still, we're not even in the same league as, as what used to be the worst. We're still well, well above the worst. And then, so the question I suppose should be asked is, why is anybody surprised if consumers, American consumers, are not too happy? Because that's what the results were from a recent University of Michigan survey. And here I'm quoting, I'm quoting you from the article. I think it's from a, from a media here, but quote, more surprising was the finding that consumers, despite the expected passage of a massive stimulus bill, viewed prospects for the national economy less favorably in early February than last month. As you said, surprising to whom? We're on week 48. Yeah, that was actually from the University of Michigan's press release. Okay. So surprising to the University of Michigan economists, certainly, and probably to most people because, you know, government payment stimulus. Why wouldn't people think of the, the future positively if Uncle Sam's going to loosen the purse strings more than the trillions that had already done the previous year. It sounds terrific. It sounds awesome. I mean, we're throwing a party in Robin Hood. Well, it's, it goes back to the permanent income hypothesis, right? People are not as dumb as I guess we are assumed to be. They know that the 600 stimulus check is a one-time deal. The Congress has had a hard enough time passing that, or is it 1600? Not that it matters because it's just not enough. It's not a continuous 1600. And I guess the point you're making here in this article, Jeff, is uh, whether or not the government can continue to kind of buy their way towards a recovery. Well, that's right. I mean, quite naturally, you would associate, you know, positive sentiment with, with permanent income, with the job, right? Because that's going to allow you to live the life the way that you've come to expect, or even, you know, it allows you to think ahead and think, well, I'll get a better job. You know, I can keep progressing as people normally do. If you think that the labor market is awful, where even if you're still employed, you realize that, man, things are really bad out there, then it doesn't matter that the government comes along and says, periodically, I'm going to give you a check, and it's going to be based on a whole bunch of political considerations. Are you going to base your spending patterns, your debt patterns, all of your consumer patterns on the whims of Congress? Are you going to allow Janet Yellen to set for you your your proclivities and incentives for spending? No, you're not. You're not going to react as much to that. You might react favorably in the short run, but you're going to realize at the end of the day, what matters most, what matter, what only matters, is jobs, labor, and really, it's you know we're in February of 2021. We're coming up on one year now, so perceptions, these negative perceptions of the labor market, you know, maybe in Last last uh, last spring and last summer, you would thought, well, yeah, it's really bad, but it's going to get better. You know, things we're reopening the economy. It sounds like things are going to move pretty quickly toward normal. So 
the government's spending a lot of money. We'll think favorably about everything because it seems like things can get really better. But here in February 2021, and the labor market's still as bad as it has ever been since the 1930s, you know, you can understand why people would take a dim view. Even after being gifted $600 from Uncle Sam, it doesn't really change your perception of the economy. It doesn't really change what you're going to do based on you know, how you're going to spend because, well, it's good that you got the $600 and maybe you could pay rent this month. It doesn't change what happens next month or the month after or the month after that. You really want to be beholden to congressional authority when you get your next 600? No, it, it does not replace and it cannot replace the labor market and jobs. But members of our audience right now, Jeff, they may be saying, hold on a minute. Earlier this week, I did hear really good news about the American consumer in the form of retail sales. And I'm going to read yes, out. Retail of- sales absolutely exploded. Well, maybe they exploded higher in January. We're not really sure. Seasonally adjusted, it was, I think, a 5% monthly gain, which is absolutely astronomical. But the seasonal adjustments didn't really agree with the non-seasonal adjustments. And the unadjusted data was only about 6% higher than January of 2020, which given where we are, that's not really all that robust. So, but either way, spending retail sales had been declining since last September which was a reflection of, hey, the last round of the stimulus started to get spent and run out. The labor market had stopped improving. And so for the last quarter of last year, consumer spending went in reverse. And the revised figures for December showed that the the, the drop in December was pretty sharp. So over the last quarter, consumers spent less because you know, uh, unemployment benefits were, were running out. The labor market wasn't improving. And so it made sense that they would spend less. If I think you've, uh, you've buried the lead here. And that was that whole seasonally adjusted and not seasonally adjusted part of the story. Now, what I was going to do, I was going to read out a few comments from very well-respected journals of finance, such as the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, and I was going to tell you that nowhere in there do they talk about not seasonally adjusted or seasonally adjusted like you do, and you bring to our attention a discrepancy, an unusual adjustment. What Can you tell the audience that it's somewhat unusual, this uh, seasonal adjustment? Usually seasonal adjustments, there's, it's not uncommon to find seasonally adjusted numbers to disagree a little bit with the unadjusted numbers because, you know, the number of weekends where a holiday falls, for example, on a calendar. Easter is a particularly notoriously difficult one. Some, some years it's in March, some years it's in April. That, that, that changes uh, spending patterns and, and changes the seasonal adjusting. So those things are normal. We, we, know, that they're, we know that they're there. But there really isn't an apparent reason why the seasonally adjusted figure would be so 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 much larger, so much bigger than the unadjusted figure for January of 2021. The nearest I can come up with is that New Year's happened to fall on a Friday, which meant that the first weekend of, of January was kind of different than it had been in the year before. And that's not really a plausible explanation. So I don't really know why there was such a large seasonal adjustment in January. There were the same number of weekends. Weekends are always a big factor. You know, consumers like to spend on weekends and that kind of a thing. So there's really no identifiable reason to me why the seasonally adjusted number had gone so far. And it may be just, uh, well, you know, it could be any number of reasons. But maybe we're concerned that it's not 
real, sustainable? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, I think that's, I don't, it just seems suspicious. I, not suspicious. Let's hold uh, back judgment for a couple yeah, more months. Well, what we're really we'll saying, see. what they're really saying is that when we look at a typical January, there was much more spending in this January than a typical January. That's all really seasonal adjustments are, is comparing this, this, this current one to what is typically happens in other months and other, other months, the same months of each calendar and saying, is it a lot more? Is it a lot less? Is it about the normal? You know, what do we, and so what, what they're really saying is that, look, this, this January, there was more spending than last January and quite a bit more spending. Now, how much more? That's, that'll be, the, we'll have to work that out over the months ahead to see if there is an adjustment give back in February, which is probably pretty likely. And so that will complicate our analysis of what happened in February after the $600 payments were off. Is it the payments wearing off if there's a drop in, January, in February? It just it makes it much more complicated to look at apples to apples. Well, I think the most important part I want the audience to keep in mind here is that honestly, I looked through a lot of papers that were writing about retail sales. Nowhere else was it brought up what Jeff just talked about. I think that's why you're all listening to the show. So that's wonderful. Jeff, I had a great time. Let's do this again next week. 